Good morning, church. I'm so happy to see you again this morning. This past week on Wednesday night, we had an absolutely fantastic praise and prayer night. And I'm so grateful to all of you who came out and joined us for that. It was, for me, a very powerful and emotional evening. And I hope and I pray that we would have more of it this morning. But I would like to encourage you as well, moving forward, folks, in this season, what we need is we need to do, as much as we need to spend time in prayer on our own, we need to do it together corporately as well. So I'd like to invite you already for next time, um, which will be sometime in the next couple months to come and join us for that. But that, just mark it in your minds already that, that when that comes, that you're going to be here because we need to spend time in prayer. We need to reach out to God, praying together, not just individually, but as a body as well. So, so I'm looking forward to that. And also, can I just say, uh, the, the announcement was made about the baptism uh, class tomorrow. If you'd like to join us for that, I would encourage you to come out to that. We would love to have you with us. Um, even if you're not getting baptized, but you want to know more about it. Or maybe you're not even a believer. You're not sure if you're a believer. Come and join us and find out more about that. So I would love to meet you there and get to know you more. Having said that, we're going to turn our minds now back to the Word of God. And take your Bibles and open up to Judges chapter 17 and 18. We've been going through the book of Judges, looking at the narrative of the history of Israel in the, through the lens of this book. And one of the things I want to say before I get into the sermon here is that we live in a, in a society that is super individualized. You get things the way you want them. I mean, you can go to any restaurant you don't just order the meal the way it comes. You individualize your meal. You don't like something, you have them take it off. You want something added, you tell them to put it on, right? So it's never just the way the chef created it. And this is kind of what we've done throughout all of our lives in every area. To the point that when we don't get the way things we would personally like to have them individualized, we often think that we actually lose some sort of right or privileges because of it. And you know, we do that with religion as well. We do that with worship as well. And so I hope today that when we look at Judges chapter 17 and 18, we're actually going to see the dangers of self-made religion. Because you see what happens if we come to the place where we do this with religion and worship as well, where we individualize, individualize. Now, there's a degree in which we can make it our own. But there's some very important things that we need to understand about religion and worship. And I hope to show you some of this today. So as we come to the last four chapters of the book of Judges, we're no longer looking at any of the judges Samson was Israel's last judge, and after him, the prophet Samuel would come along and he would usher in Israel's first king, and we know him as King Saul. But the events of the last four chapters here in the book of Judges don't actually come after the timeline of Samson. So it's not necessarily in chronological order. In fact, the last four chapters would more perfectly 
fit after most likely the life of Joshua and Othniel and their deaths, and we would see these things unfold there. And what they do is these last four chapters give us a spiritual sense of their spiritual climate within Israel and the evil they did as they imitated the pagan idolatry around them. Now, the key to understanding the last four chapters is found in chapter 17, verse 6, where we read that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Remember that phrase. That's an important phrase for us to remember even today in our day and in our age. And so what we're going to see in chapter 17 and 18 is that it's going to reveal to us a self-made religion and the deception that comes along with that as well as the end result of a self-made religion. So the first point we want to look at today is we want to identify this self-made religion. So chapter 17, read with me starting at verse 1, we read this. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I, I took it. And his mother said, oh, blessed be the son, my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from the hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. And so when he had restored the money to his mother... His mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods. Some translations here might say teraphim and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. And in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we're introduced here to a man by the name of Micah. He lives in Mount Ephraim, which is just north of the city of Jerusalem, and he lives in the most prominent and powerful tribe of Israel. Now, Micah's name means who is like Yahweh, insinuating that there is no one like the God of Israel. That's literally what his name means. And yet, Micah's life doesn't demonstrate that. What we see in his life is a mix of religiosity coupled with a degree of superstition. Now, when you read the story, indications reveal that Micah is actually well-to-do. And why? We don't know. But he steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. But once he hears that his mother has invoked a curse upon whoever stole the money, he returns it to his mother. Now, we, look, we hear this, we go, well, that's good. That's the right thing to do. But here's the concern when we look at this. We know that Micah believes in God. That becomes apparent in the story. But 
when he gives the money back to his mother, he doesn't repent because it's morally or spiritually wrong in the sight of God. He's not convicted of sin. He confesses because he's superstitious because his mother has uttered a curse upon whoever has stolen the money. And he doesn't want that curse to come upon him. And so what this helps us understand is that Micah doesn't actually know the true and living God. The one that he's actually named after. And we actually begin to see that his heart is actually far from God. Now sadly, Micah's mother isn't really different. Yes, she reverses the curse by invoking God's blessing on her son. And so she comes across as a very godly and spiritual mother, but she tells him that she has now dedicated all that money to make a carved and metal image. But here's the thing, she's actually dishonest, and out of the 1,100, which she says she's dedicated to this, she only now gives 200 pieces of silver instead of the full amount. So by her actions, we see that she doesn't know God either, because listen, it's not just the fact that she wasn't honest about the amount of silver she was going to give to create this image of God, but the very fact that she created an image of God, which contradicts the second commandment in the Ten Commandments that God had given them, which states that they were not to make any carved image of anything in heaven or on earth to worship it. And yet, she makes an image of God. And it doesn't matter what kind of image you would make of God, it's going to be wrong. Because no one has ever seen God. We've seen him in the person of Jesus Christ. But God the Father, no one has ever seen and so any image you make of him is wrong. And it's limiting because no image can contain all that God is. But you see, their disobedience and their sinfulness doesn't end here. Micah also has a shrine. Now, nowadays, even in Middle Eastern countries, people have a small shrine, but... Um, Doing the research, he actually had a bigger place built, more like a worship center, kind of like the tabernacle that Israel had in a place called Shiloh. And he's done this on his property. He's built this at his house. And this also was a no-no because God had commanded and designated a place for worship, which at this time was in a town called Shiloh, which was a mere few kilometers from his house. So he's created his own place of worship, which is a no-no. He's set up a carved image of God that he's received from his mother, which is a no-no. But then what's more, he's also created an ephod. Now, an ephod was a special garment that commanded by God that the Levites should wear during their priestly duties. And so he's created his own. 
And if that's not all, he's also created an array of small statues of household gods normally known as teraphim. So he's worshiping the God of Israel, but he's also worshiping all these other little gods that he's made. And then to add insult to injury, he then takes his own son and ordains him as his own personal priest, which also was a no-no because the Levitical priesthood was commanded by God and called only to be executed by those of the tribe of the Levites, of which they were not. You see, what he's done is he's created his own, relig his own religion. He's created his own system of worship. It's a self-made religion. But if this was sin in God's eyes, why then did he still do it? When the Ten Commandments were so clear and God had laid out for them clearly how they were to worship him and what their religious duty looked like, why does he still veer away from that? Because we read in verse 6, and there was no king in Israel in those days and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's true, Israel did not have a human king. But you know what? They had something much greater than a human king. They had the only true and living God. And he was to be their king. But they had rejected him as king. And listen, when you reject God as your king, as your God, you're left with no other recourse than to do what is right in your own eyes, which stands in direct contradiction to the will of God. And Micah and the rest of Israel did this by choice. He developed his own religion, his own system of worship. And he did this by choice. He chose to do this. God said, worship me in Shiloh. Micah says, no, thanks, I'll build a place of worship at my own place. God says, you shall worship no other gods before me. Micah says, hey, I'll choose to worship a whole collection of gods. God says, you shall not make a graven image of anything in heaven or on earth to worship it. Micah says, I'll create an image of you. God says only the Levites shall serve as priests. Micah ordains his own son as his personal priest, who's not a Levite. And yet in all of this, in all of this disobedience, Micah still thinks that he's in right standing with God. He thinks God must be happy with him. Because I'm very religious there's a lot of activity here. I've even I got my own place of worship. And I've even created an image after you, God. What we have here is a self-made religion that is the result of Micah following his own heart. 
David Gutzig, I believe, says it well when he says, this is very much like the modern follow your heart or let your heart be your guide type of thinking. And I thought to myself, my goodness, does that not reflect our day today? There really is nothing new under the sun. Right? Man does not change. And the, the religion that we hear echoed today over and over again is follow your heart. Follow your heart, right? Follow your heart. That's the message of our society today. That's today's religion. Let your own heart be your guide. Let your heart be your standard of truth and morality. Let your heart determine what your religion and your worship looks like. There are so many people out there who follow their heart. And they do what's right in their own eyes. Believing that they are good in the eyes of God. When the reality is that what they're actually reflecting is what we find in 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 where Paul wrote to Timothy talking about people who have the sense of religion or godliness about them saying having an appearance of godliness yet denying its power. And that was the condition in Micah's day. And that is certainly true of our day as well. You see, self-made religion in any form and every form is idolatry. And it is sin. It is disobedience against God. It is to reject God and his way. No matter what it looks like. No matter how right it looks. But the story continues here. It doesn't end. The second thing I want to show you is the deception of a self-made religion. So we continue on in chapter 17 at verse 7. We read this. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there, meaning he came across in the area of where Micah lived. Verse 8. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to, to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, so stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothing and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to, to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And then Micah said, Micah, now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So the story expands. We back away a little bit from Micah and his setting, and we bring in a new character. He's a young Levite. Now, if you were to actually look in the next chapter, chapter 18, verse 30, 
we actually find out that his name is Jonathan, and he's the grandson of Moses. So we can kind of put this in a timeline here. He's the grandson of Moses. Now, some of your translations will say that he's the grandson of Manasseh. But for reasons that I won't get into this morning, that is not accurate. I don't believe that to be accurate. It's actually the grandson of Moses. And as a descendant of Moses, listen, this is important. As a descendant of Moses... His calling from God, although Moses and his brother Aaron were the descendants of Levi, meaning the Levites, but specifically in the line of Moses, they were to assist the priests in their duties. Okay? So he wasn't a priest. That was reserved for Moses' brothers Aaron's descendants. They were the priesthood. But the descendants of Moses were to assist the priests, but he's abandoned his calling, and he's just gone about, as the Australians would say, his walkabout, right? In our day and age, we're all just going to get in a minivan, and we're going to travel across, right? See where we end up. That's what this young Levite is doing. He's kind of, he's abandoned his duties, just looking for a place that he might like to live, and he comes across Micah. He comes to his place. And in their discussion, Micah is instantly intrigued when he finds out that Jonathan is a Levite and immediately offers him a job as his personal priest. Now, remember, he's already ordained his own son as his priest. But, man, if you can get a Levite to serve as your personal priest, okay, you've just gone up in favor in the eyes of God. Right? That's, that's Micah's thinking. Jonathan likes the conditions that Micah has offered, and he accepts the position. But here's the thing. Jonathan should have turned it down because he knew that as a descendant of Moses, it was not his place to fill the position as priest. He knew that. But like everyone else in Israel, he's doing what's right in his own eyes. And with this offer from Micah, he doesn't have to play second fiddle to the priests because he can be the priest. Right? This, he sees this as a step up. He gets paid, he gets clothing, his living is taken care of, and Micah loves this idea as well. Micah loves that Jonathan, this Levite, is going to take this position because he believes God now has no choice but to prosper me because I'm employing a Levite. How many times haven't we maybe bought into that sort of thinking? We go about our daily lives hardly concerned of God, or about God, maybe we are, maybe not, do what we want to do, when, how, without really considering God in all of it. But because I go to church, God has to bless me, right? I may live like the world, but because maybe I do some good in the community, God has to bless me. These are very real ways of thinking. I even had a fellow come to me and say, I know the way I live isn't right. 
He literally said that, I know the way I'm living isn't right, but I pray the Lord's Prayer every night, and I know because of that he blesses me. There's a major deception in this. When we think that we can live in blatant disobedience to God. But because I observe some kind of religious or moral activity, God has to bless me. Well, let's continue to see how this worked out for Micah. Let's see how this deception finally unfolds for him. We step back a little further, and the story expands, and we now are introduced to the tribe of Dan, the Danites. And the, the tribe of Dan comes into the story, and they too are doing what's right in their own eyes. You see, they weren't happy with the lot of land that had been allotted them in the land of Canaan, which was more over towards the east coast. Now, we don't like that. And so they set out looking for a new territory up in the north. And as they're heading up to check out the land, spy out the land, to see where they'd like to move to, they come across Micah's house. So they've sent out five or six men to go check it out. And now look at chapter 18, verses 3 through 6. As these spies head on out, when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of a young Levite, and they turned aside to him. Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What's your business here? And he, as Jonathan, said to them, well, this is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me, and I've become his priest. And they said to him, oh, well, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go was under the eye of the Lord. Now, there is so much missing in this story, in this right here. We don't have the time to get into it this morning. But he should not have simply given out that blessing because God was not with him in this. And you'll notice, if you pay attention as we go through these last four chapters, God is eerily silent in everything. We have this form of religion, but we don't see God active in any of it. And so as good and as religious as this all seemed, even here at Micah's house when when when. Jonathan supposedly gave them God's blessing and said God is with him. It's all a farce. God is not with them. He's absent in these stories. Look at verse 7 now. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there. So they found this city. Listen, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth, and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. Ah, oh, Shangri-La, we found our place. This is it. 
Here's where we want to be. You know what's so ironic about all of this? This is precisely what God had promised them if they would live in obedience to him. If they would keep the covenant that they had made with God. These were all the promises God said they would have. But they didn't. They've broken covenant with God. They're not worshiping him alone. They're not living holy, righteous lives unto God. They've incorporated a number of pagan sins and worship that is contrary to the will of God. And so they've negated all of this, and now they're going looking for it apart from God. And they find this place. It's like, yeah, that's it. That's what we want. So excited, these five men return home. They round up 600 men of the tribe of Dan and set out to conquer this exquisite place that they found. Now, as they're heading up, the scouts that found the place tell this merry band of 600 soldiers that, hey, along the way, there's this place. It's got an ephod, and they've got household gods, and they've even got a carved image of God. And then the camera pans back over to Micah, and he's about to learn that God does not prosper him simply because he employs a Levi. This band of soldiers come upon Micah's house and they rob him of all his household gods and the carved image of the living God. And when Micah's personal priest, Jonathan, sees what's going on, he inquires of them what they're doing. Look at verses 19 and 20. This is how this tribe of Dan responds. And they said to him, that's to Jonathan, keep quiet. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us and be to us as a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be the priest to the house of one man or to be the priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? You see, Jonathan here recognizes the opportunity for self-promotion, and he's happy to accept this. Yeah, this is a leg up. Not only should I never have been a priest, but now I'm getting promoted from household priest to priest over a tribe. Things are looking up for me. Verse 20. And the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So not only does he leave Micah, he now steals everything from Micah that was important to him in his religious worship. And heads off with this merry band of soldiers. But when Micah discovers what happened, he sets out in pursuit of this Danite, these Danite soldiers who've stolen his gods and his priests. And when he catches up, we read in verses 23 through 26, and they shouted to the people of Dan, that's Micah and his group of men, who turned around and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, listen, here it is. You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? That's important. How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us. 
lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life and with the lives of your household. But then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and he went back to his home. You take my gods that I made. Oh, the irony in that statement. You take the gods that I made and the priest and you go away. And what have I left? You see, the deception behind a self-made religion is that you think you have everything. You think you've secured God's blessing on your life. When the reality is, you actually have nothing. If someone can take your God from you, you never had a real God. What you had is a God of your own making. Conversely, if the Lord is your God, you can have everything taken from you. And lose everything, but they cannot take God from you. And when you have God, you have everything. You see, those who believe that they're in good standing with God, simply because of a small degree of self-imposed religiosity, fail to understand that they're not in good standing with God. They fail to realize that they're actually far from God. And they fail to realize that they're actually under the judgment of God. Oh, that we would keep ourselves from self-made religion and from worshiping anything else that is not the true and living God. And that it would keep us from worshiping anything that does not bring glory to God. Now, I want to show you the end result of a self-made religion. And it actually doesn't say much about this. But we need to pay attention to this. So join me again, chapter 18, starting verse 27. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made... And the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. And it was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of that city was Laish at, at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved images for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites, until, listen, until the day of the captivity of the land. And so they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. 
You see, the Danites believed that they had come to the place where they were going to live in sweet blessing for all the time to come. The Danites had stolen Micah's priests and his gods and hoped that they had secured the favor of the living God and all the other gods. And yes, they do go and they conquer the city of Laish and they set up their idols that they've stolen from Micah. And yes, Jonathan continues as their illegitimate priest. And his sons follow in his footsteps. And it all sounds good and it looks like the favor of God is really upon them. But then we read this statement and it says, until the day of the captivity of the land. Just this seemingly almost obscure little statement just kind of tagged on at the end. But so much of the Old Testament is born out of that statement right there, the consequences of that statement right there. You see, it seemed as though God's favor was upon the tribes of Dan now, but reality caught up to them. You see, oftentimes we look at people in their lifestyles who are, who are very well-to-do, very well-off, and we see, boy, God has really blessed them. In fact, David even talks about this in some of his Psalms. Why do the wicked look like they prosper? Why, Lord? And we're suffering the way we do. David talks about that. But here's the thing that we learn through Job as well. That sometimes and oftentimes when people are living a life of luxury and blessing, it's not because God has blessed you, but because God has handed you over to your desires and to your way and to your will because you're storing up for yourself the wrath of God. You want your way? Here it is. Enjoy it. Because it's the only pleasure you're ever going to know. Until the day of the captivity of the land. The result of self-made religion here in Israel's day was that when they abandoned God, or even when they maintained or retained some elements of the worship of God, but then mixed it with pagan worship. Israel is taken into captivity because of the sin and the wickedness of idolatry. You see, self-made religion, even if you're just doing some of the things that God says, while creating or worshiping something else is always idolatry and will always eventually end up in judgment and the loss of all things. Self-made religion is always disobedience to God and is sin. And we too must keep ourselves from a self-made religion. The way to do that is to remember the words of Jesus in John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Yes, folks, Jesus is the truth. 
And through him and in him, we receive the truth because he has become truth for us. And he reveals to us the true way to worship God and the only way to be accepted and blessed by God. And the blessings that allow us to be in good and right standing with God only come through Jesus Christ. And when we've submitted ourselves by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, our religion or our act of worship is to submit our lives to the Lord as living sacrifices to his will and to his way, doing all things, whatever we do, for the glory of God. Every other way is man-made and is a system of deception and only results in the judgment of God. But, you know, we're here today, and we hear this, and we know this. And so we can thank God that he has revealed the truth to us. And we do thank God for that, amen? Thank you, Lord, for showing us, revealing us the truth in these matters. But let me press you with some urgency this morning. We know this truth. And it warms our heart and we thank God for revealing this to us. But the majority of our own community world around us, the people that we work with, the people we go to school with, the people we play sports with, the people that live next door to us, the majority do not. They don't know this. And so many of them believe that they're in right standing with God simply because they may utter a prayer once a day. Or because they do some good in the community. Or because they attend a church service somewhere. Most of them are deceived and unaware of the dangers of their self-made religion. They're not in right standing with God. But here's the thing. God has been merciful to you and me because we were just like them. We were like them. But by his grace and by his mercy, he has shown us and revealed us the truth. And he now calls us to take this truth and make it to known to those who are in darkness. Will you go and extend God's grace and mercy to those around you who don't know that they're deceived? thinking that they're in good standing with God when they're not? Will you go and be a living sacrifice to God? And take this good news and helping your neighbors and your friends and your workmates and your sports mates know that there is only one way to worship so that you might be in right standing with God? Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, your word is so rich. Your word just covers every area of our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would keep us from worshiping anything besides you.
I pray, Lord, we wouldn't create our own system of religion. I pray that we would not be falsely deceived thinking we're in good standing with God simply because we've done a few good things or we do a few good things as though we have a Levite under our service with the wrong thinking like Micah did. Lord, keep us from those things. Lord, we do have a priest who intercedes for us and his name is Jesus Christ. And he has opened the way so that we can be in right standing with God and it's the only way. Lord, lay the burden upon our hearts of the souls that are lost around us, the people who are deceived, Lord. Even if they should reject the truth, Lord, may we still go out and share it with them. Lord, we thank you that you've been so gracious and merciful to us and revealed the truth to us. Would you give us the courage, the boldness, the strength to now take this to those who are in darkness? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.